Every now and then, circumstances align in a person's life where they have a defining moment. What happens next, what they do, will be remembered forever. It could be a good thing where they're memorialized forever, or it could be a bad thing where they live on in infamy. You can take the world of sports, for example. The, the concept of glory is often associated with sports. And back in the 1988 World Series, there was glory to be had. It was the Oakland Athletics versus the L.A. Dodgers. Game one of the World Series. The A's were heavily favored to win, and the Dodgers were down 4-3. to three. Bottom of the ninth. And upsteps to the plate, Kirk Gibson, who's not expected to play that evening because he had injuries in both of his legs, but he was needed as a pinch hitter. And it's the classic baseball scenario. It's World Series, bottom of the ninth. Two outs, one runner on. You're down four to three, and it's a full count. This is the last pitch of the game. It's going to determine who wins, who loses. The pitch comes, he hits it, and it's a home run in the right field. And he wins the game. The crowd, of course, goes wild, and that moment has lived on. The Dodgers went on to win that World Series in five games, but that one moment, just winning the first game, just went on to live forever. It's been voted the greatest sports event in L.A. history. And Kirk Gibson, he wasn't like a superstar. He didn't have the most amazing career, but because of that one hit, just one hit, he's remembered forever in baseball glory. And that sounds nice. You can be imperfect, you can screw up here and there, but you just have one good moment and you're remembered as a hero forever. And that sounds nice. It sounds nice unless your breakout moment results in disaster. There's another side of this coin where some people are remembered forever in infamy because of something they did wrong. And just to continue the sports theme, you take the 1991 Super Bowl, Super Bowl 25. New York Giants were leading the Buffalo Bills 20 to 19. There are eight seconds left in the game, and the Bills had the ball at the 47-yard line, and their only chance to win was through a kick. They send the kicker out, Scott Norwood. And many doubted if he had the range. Well, the kick went up, and it had the distance, and it looked good. But then it sailed just a foot to the right of the goalpost. And they lost the game. And amazingly, the Bills, they went on to make it to the next three consecutive Super Bowls when they lost all of those two. So this was a particularly sour event and memory in their history. And I have to tell you, being a football kicker has to be the worst job ever. Because when you do right, nobody really cares. But if you screw up and do wrong, everyone just wants to kill you. Norwood left football after the next season. He returned home. He completely left the public eye, obviously. It's really sad, though. His entire career, all the accomplishments, all the positive things he did are just totally overlooked and overshadowed by just that one missed kick. And he's forever remembered, and at least in Buffalo, hated because of what he did. A lot of people say they want to be remembered forever, but it could be, it's a mixed bag. It could be a blessing. It could be a curse. It all depends. Well, in a much more serious and significant manner, this morning we come to learn about two people in particular whose deeds have not been forgotten. They've been remembered forever because of what they did. I mean, let's face it, in 100 years, who's going to remember these sports figures? And in 2,000 years, they're definitely going to be forgotten. But amazingly, we find two people who, still after 2,000 years, they're still remembered, and even just for one thing. They did one deed, one for the better, one for the worse, and it continues to define them. Who are these two people? One is a woman named Mary, whose supreme act of love and devotion still inspires, and the other is a man named 
Judas, whose supreme act of greed and betrayal still reviles. Both have been and will be remembered forever, one for the better, one for the worse. And we find them now in Mark chapter 14. So take your Bibles, open them now to Mark chapter 14. We just spent nine weeks in Mark chapter 13, but now we finish, it's time to move on. And we get to chapter 14, we finally get to the heart of Christ's passion, the time of his suffering and death. How did this happen? Just a few days before, Sunday, triumphal entry, Jesus enters Jerusalem, thousands of people are hailing him as the Messiah, I mean, they love him. So how did he go from being a shining star on Sunday to a crucified criminal on Friday? How'd that happen? Well, chapter 14 fills in the blanks and gets us from there to there. Our passage today especially sets the scene for what's to come. We find that Christ's death was actually plotted by the religious leaders of Israel. And it was sparked by Judas. They had all the gasoline and Judas was the match. Of course, everything happened to God's sovereign plan, but we will see this all unfold through this chapter. Mark 14 begins with Jesus in his final days. We just witnessed him on a Tuesday of Passion Week. It was a long day of teaching and confrontation in the temple. Come evening, Jesus retired to Bethany like he always did. But that evening, he stopped on the Mount of Olives and he proceeded to teach his disciples about things to come, about what would take place before his return, before the kingdom. That's all chapter 13. Now we get into chapter 14. It's the same day, same basically time, except now we learn about something that was taking place elsewhere, some behind the scenes at what was going on while Jesus was on that mountain. A little bit of a longer passage, but I want to get you into it. So let's, let's start by reading the text. What we'll be looking at today, Mark 14, 1 through 11. Let's see what was going on while Jesus was giving that all of the discourse, at least to begin with. Mark 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Verse 3. And while he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This is a special passage for many reasons, as we'll see. But already, you can't help but notice this contrast between this woman, who will find out it is Mary, and this man Judas. One commits an act of supreme love 
and the other an act of supreme betrayal, and both are remembered forever. And although there's actually three distinct responses to Jesus in this passage, and that makes all the difference. How you respond to Jesus makes all the difference in the world. What you believe about him, how you view him, how you respond to him, that, that determines your eternal destiny. In fact, this passage, it serves almost like a paradigm. It shows us the three typical responses to Jesus throughout all history, even up till today. And so I want us to move in now for a closer look and go through this passage. I want to frame it a little bit and I want to show you these three typical responses to Jesus. It characterizes this passage. It characterizes people today. This is still how people respond to him. Much we learn from this. Three typical responses to Jesus. And the first is this. It's the response of non-believers. The response of non-believers. Now look again at verse 1. It starts off, it frames it, it says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Now take it, most of you, you're already familiar with, with Passover. This was the top Jewish holy day. It's one of their great days of remembrance. That's where hundreds of of thousands of pilgrims streamed into Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast where they remembered God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And we're going to study the Passover celebration in great detail as, as time goes on later in the chapter. And right after Passover comes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that took place on the next, next day, lasted for about a week. And that, that was named after the, the unleavened bread that the Jews took when they escaped Egypt. It commemorates the exodus itself, and we'll see all that more to come. Verse 1, though, tells us that this was still two days away. Passover was two days away. Passover that year was on a Friday, or technically you know, Thursday at sundown, which means this day is still Tuesday, Tuesday of Passion Week. It's clear chapter 14 begins the same day that Jesus was giving the Olivet Discourse in chapter 13. Except here in verse 1, like I said, we're learning, we're getting a little peek into something that was taking place elsewhere at the same time. So again, verse 1, now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. It says, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now, we've seen these guys several times before. We've got the chief priests and the other priests. They were the rulers of Jerusalem, the temple. They were Sadducees, along with the other priests, which meant they favored Roman rule because that means they got to stay in power. And they were a little more liberal on the side when it comes to God's law. This is in contrast to the scribes, who were mostly Pharisees, and they hated nothing more than Roman rule. And they were very conservative when it came to God's law, they advocated a strict observance of the law. And normally these guys, they hate each other. The scribes and the Pharisees versus the, the priests and the Sadducees, they did not get along. Except here, we see them come together in their mutual hatred of Jesus. It's actually not the first time that these groups have come together in their hatred of Jesus. Just a couple months before this, back it tells us about this in John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus, from the dead. You remember that. That also took place in Bethany, which is two miles outside Jerusalem. And when that happened, some Jews who witnessed it, they ran into town, they ran into Jerusalem, and they told the Pharisees what just happened. Like, we just saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And can you guess how the Pharisees responded to that news? 
John chapter 11, verse 47 says, Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Verse 53 says, So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. That's amazing unbelief, isn't it? Because they never doubted that resurrection. They, They never doubted that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It's just that they didn't care. All they care about is their power, and Jesus is a threat to that. If Jesus gets too popular through all these signs, you know, he's going to lead a populist revolt against Rome. And the Romans, they're not going to tolerate that, so they're going to move in with force. And when they move in, who's going to be the first to go? Well, it's going to be the, the religious leaders, all, the, all those priests, all those scribes. They're going to go. So Jesus has to be stopped. They can't let him go on. They can't let him keep rising in popularity. And the same thing is happening here in Mark 14. Only now it's much worse. Now they're even more committed and dedicated to killing Jesus. It's all due to recent events. Just a few days before this, Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem and thousands of people are following him and hailing him as the Messiah. So he's already way too popular. The next day, remember what he does? He comes in the temple like he owns the place and he cleans house. He totally exposes the priests as, as crooks as corrupt. And the following day, teaching the temple, he proceeds to just pronounce these harsh woes of condemnation on the scribes and Pharisees. He calls them out for their hypocrisy in front of everyone. So he's taking shots and they're looking really bad. This can't go on. They've got to do something real quick here. And so now all the more they're determined to kill Jesus. I mean, it's not like they're going to repent and believe in him. They've got to get rid of him. The only difference, though, is that now they have to change tactics. Plan A was to try and trap Jesus in public. We actually saw that back in Mark 11, Mark 12, which was all the same day. This is all basically Tuesday of of that Passion Week. Earlier in the temple, the religious leaders, they approached Jesus, and they tried so hard to trap him in some statement. Their thinking was, "If if we can just trip him up, get him to say something, we can try and diminish his popularity in front of the people, Or maybe we can get him to speak out against Rome. I mean, they're trying as hard as they can to trip him up, but it it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus makes them look like fools every time. And so they realize that clearly they're not going to catch him in public. He's just too shrewd. But they also, they can't just risk outright arresting him in public because he's too popular. Remember, this is during Passover, so there's already hundreds of thousands of extra people in Jerusalem. And nationalistic spirits ran high during this time. This is when riots against Rome were already common. And furthermore, many people in the crowd were Galileans. And they were known to favor Jesus. So if they just nab him in the middle of the crowd, that, that's going to spark a riot. That, that's not good. That's, that's their worst case scenario. So they they got to go to plan B. we got to get him in private. we got to find him when he's alone. And we've got to arrest him and just, and just take him out. And so verse 2, you see what they say. They say, not during the festival. Can't do, it, doing it, can't do it during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. This has to be done in private, in stealth. And we'll learn more about that later. But just stopping here already, just overall, looking at their response, 
Isn't this just the, the typical response of, of non-believers to Jesus? How do they respond to him? Basically, they, they hate him. They hate him. Why? Why do they hate Jesus? I mean, he's so loving and like kind. Why would, why would anyone hate him? Well, they hate him because he exposes their sin and condemns it. Jesus stands for the truth. He represents God's righteousness. And like we learned last week, the darkness hates the light. Remember John 3.19? This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Non-believers, they don't want to admit their sin, confess it, repent, seek the Lord. I mean, that they, they love their sin. They're living for it. They're enslaved to it. They love the darkness, therefore they hate the light. Jesus, he's like the ultimate buzzkill. He, he convicts their conscience of all the things they're doing wrong, and, and they can't have that, so they've got to get rid of him. They've got to turn off the light. You've got to somehow suppress him and get him out of the way. This is the, the typical response of non-believers to Jesus. They hate him. they got to get him out. And how they respond to him, that's still how they respond to his followers today. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And us. And just like Jesus, the world, they hate us. Why? Well, because we stand with him. We, we take his side. We, we stand for what he represents, the truth, the righteousness of God. Therefore, we can't just approve of the world's sin, and so they, they hate us for that. This is the response of non-believers to Jesus and for those who, who stand with him. Don't think this still doesn't happen today. Quick example. You all know, just a couple weeks ago, this guy walks into this Oregon community college and he starts shooting. And kills many people. But he had special targets. He asked the victims a question, one question. Did you read about this? He said, are you a Christian? That was his one question. If they said yes, he shot them in the head. If they said no, he shot them in the back or the leg. And talk about pure hatred, discrimination. Our world would call that a hate crime, right? Except they didn't. All the media coverage, even the president, nobody labeled it as a hate crime. There's been no major outrage over this targeting of Christians. I can guarantee if the shooter asked people, are you gay, are you Muslim, or if he targeted blacks, there'd be such a massive outrage. But the killing of Christians, our society, we can tolerate that. I mean, it's not like that big of a deal. And that double standard just reflects exactly what Jesus was talking about. He said, this is how it's going to be. They'll hate you because of me. It's just the typical response of the darkness to the light. And sadly, the outcome for such non-believers is their own doom because in hating Jesus, they're rejecting their only means of salvation. It's like sinking your own life raft when you're lost at sea. You're dooming yourself. But in hardness of heart, this is still how they respond to him. Just make sure this isn't you. Humble yourself before God. You see your sin, you, you, you own it, you confess it, the darkness in your life, and you repent. And turn to Christ. He's the light. He's the only one who, who can forgive you and bring you into the light. 
And that's how true believers respond to Him. They confess, they repent, they believe, they follow, they love Him. They don't hate Jesus, they love Jesus. And this brings us to number two, the response of true believers. The second typical response, it's, it's the good one, it's the response of true believers. First, the response of non-believers. Second, the response of true believers. Back to Mark 14. Now we change scenes. And we learn about someone who doesn't hate Jesus, but who truly loves Jesus. Now you wouldn't know this right away, but verse 3 actually jumps back in time to the Saturday before the triumphal entry. The gospel writers, they're not always chronological on purpose, because they're not merely reporting history. Yes, everything here is historical, but it's also theological. And Mark, he purposely inserts this episode about this woman right here on purpose because he's showing this this absolute black and white contrast between this woman, Mary, and Judas and how they respond to Jesus. I mean, both of these figures, they're in a way preparing Jesus for death, aren't they? But in vastly different ways. And he wants us to see that contrast. So that's why he does this. We'll see that more when we get to verse 10. But for now, look at verse 3. It takes us back and he says, While he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. He stopped there for a second. So before Jesus entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, the night before, he stops in Bethany. We already knew that. And here, though, we learn there is a dinner reception in his honor. He stops at the home of Simon the leper. Now, we don't know this guy. We don't know anything about him. Except we figure Jesus healed him of his leprosy. And that, that seems to be pretty clear. He wasn't a leper any longer. And Jesus instantly, miraculously healed many people of leprosy. And that, that's got to include this guy, Simon. Otherwise, there's no people. All these people would even go into his house. And also explains probably why he's hosting. He wants to just show his love, his devotion to the Lord who delivered him. Well, at this dinner party, the disciples were there. There were other special guests. John, in his gospel, tells us Lazarus was there. Just a few months ago, Jesus raised him from the dead. So between Simon and Lazarus, you've got good, interesting dinner conversation, right? What's it like having leprosy? I don't know. What's it like being dead? That's going to be an interesting conversation. Lazarus also had two sisters who were present. Martha was there. She was preparing dinner. That makes perfect sense. And Mary was also there. Only Mary does something rather interesting. While Jesus was reclining at a table, there came this woman. And John confirms that she was Mary. She had this alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, it says. Alabaster, it's of beautiful white stone used back then, even today, of preserving oils and perfumes. This one was carved into a flask or vial and had a long neck. Inside was oil, perfume of, of pure nard. That's, that's a, a, a nard plant in the Himalayas of, of India, which is extracted, turned into perfume. So this was imported from really far away. This was nice stuff. And he says it was pure, meaning it was undiluted. This was, this was good stuff. And we actually learned she had a lot of it. John, in his gospel, tells us she had one pound, which for the Romans, that was 12 ounces. So, you can see why Mark says this was very costly. And it really was. Later on, we'll learn the value of this, this little vial of perfume in today's terms was roughly $20,000. 
$20,000, basically one year's of wages. So you take a day laborer, what do they make in a year? That's what this was worth. Mary most likely received it as a family heirloom to be sold on a rainy day. And I got to tell you, if I had an heirloom worth $20,000, I'd be selling that real fast. But she didn't sell it. She, she used it on Jesus. Verse 3 continues, And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. When we consider the details, this is pretty shocking. She doesn't just measure out you know, one or two drops, give them to Jesus. She, she, she breaks the whole thing. She probably snaps the neck and pours it all on, on Jesus. And this, this was common in the ancient world, the anointing someone, a special guest with oil. That was actually pretty common. But never this costly, not like this. She anoints his head, and according to John, she also anoints his feet and then washes his feet with her hair. This was an extreme act of devotion. I mean, she basically spent $20,000 to douse Jesus with perfume. And John also says, after she did this, the whole house was filled with the fragrance, obviously. And no doubt this startled the other dinner guests, because women were not accustomed to interrupting the men at dinner. They weren't supposed to do this. It would have been shocking. Mary, though, doesn't seem like she cares. She's not giving any attention to what others were thinking. She just looks, she, she loves her Lord. And she wants to express her devotion to her Lord. Now, we're not told exactly what she's thinking at this moment, but we are told what others are thinking at this moment. Verse 4, it says, But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Some of the disciples were indeed quite outraged over this incident. And they're thinking, what a waste. Why? Because it's, it's worth so much money. One denarius, that was one day's wage. So 300 denarii, that's, that's basically a year's wages. So this money, that is so valuable. You could have sold it. You could have given all that money to the poor. That sounds very noble. But you're not going to be surprised. Which disciple is the one who actually said this, do you think? It, it was Judas. According to John's gospel, it was actually Judas who said that. And we also learn, not surprising, he was not being sincere. He actually didn't care about the poor. Because as John chapter 12, verse 6 says, Now Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was in it. This took a little off the top for himself. So when Mary broke the vial, Judas, he just calculated the cost in his head and he just saw money going down the drain. That's all he really saw. But not Jesus, verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. Jesus steps up in Mary's defense. Jesus will never rebuke someone for being too devoted to him. I mean, is there such a thing as too much pure devotion to the Lord? I mean, do Jesus freaks go too far? Not according to him. He, he is looking for people who are willing to give everything in devotion to him. How about you? I mean, what if you were there? You're holding basically $20,000. You could sell it, give it to the poor. You could sell it, just keep it. Or you could give it to Jesus. What would you do? And I think if most were being honest with themselves, they probably would react a little more like the rest of the disciples than like Mary. This was a costly but real act of pure devotion to the Lord. And Jesus continues, verse 7. He says, For you always have the poor with you, 
And whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Obviously, this is, this is not Jesus advocating dis, uh, indifference to the poor. I mean, he's always concerned about the poor. And the rest of the New Testament tells us to take care of those who are poor. But his point is valid. Just a few days from now, he's going to be killed. They can do good to the poor always, but they've only got a few days left with him. And there's nothing more important than, than loving Christ. So she did a good thing. But then Jesus says something truly interesting, verse 8. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And I believe this gives us some insight into what Mary was thinking and what her motivation was. The text, it doesn't explicitly say, but it appears that Mary, she had some insight into Christ's death. I mean, she, she heard his teaching. She sat at his feet. She knew a lot of what he said. And the other disciples, they seemed to filter out what Jesus said about his own death, but it appears she perhaps took it to heart. She didn't understand everything for sure, but it appears she may have known a little of the mystery of the Messiah who must die. So she did what she could. Jesus was resolute on going to the cross. She couldn't stop it. She couldn't prevent it. But she could do something. She could anoint him for his death and burial. Indeed, this, is, this would be the only anointing Jesus would receive before burial. Because after he died, everyone just fled. His disciples fled. He was put in a tomb by a stranger. And he wasn't anointed before resurrection. This would be it. Now granted, we don't exactly know what was going through her mind. But her act of devotion, it, it speaks for itself. And it still does. It still does. Verse 9. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. This is quite an honor, right? Jesus wanted all of his future disciples all around the world to remember her and what she did. And why is that? Well, it's because this is such a pure picture of what true discipleship looks like. This is it. This is how all believers should respond to Jesus. Mary's worship displayed a true faith, true love, true sacrifice. She was willing to give herself, to give what she could to him. And this is what it means to be his follower. Just pretend, hypothetically, that to follow Jesus, there was an upfront cost of $20,000. Would you follow him? I think, sadly, that would weed out a lot of phony Christians today, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, that sounds nice, but not like $20,000 nice. But the true believer knows there's, there's no cost too great to, to gaining Jesus. In fact, there is a cost to following him. Did you know that? There is a cost. The cost is your entire life. You must deny self and give yourself to Jesus, the, the Lord. To follow him means you live for him now. Your life belongs to him. After all, he redeemed you. He purchased you. He saved you. And how can you not now give him your life? You live for him now, for his glory. Like Romans 12:1 says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He, he wants it all now. All the more so for us, because we know more about Jesus than what Mary did in that moment. Because we know that a few days from that moment, Jesus himself, he'd be pouring something out. Something precious he would be sacrificing. Not perfume, but his own blood. 
on the cross. Verse 24 of Mark 14 says he would take his blood, he would pour it out, all of it, for the many. And that blood was priceless. The life of the Son of God poured out, but it wasn't wasted. Why did he pour out himself? Because the world needs saving. The world needs saving. And the only way to redeem those who are lost, well, this is it. It's He has to pour out his blood. And if you get this, if you get that Jesus poured out his life to save yours, then what's the response? What's the response of a true believer to that? Well, it's someone who believes, who follows, and then just gives. Just gives of themselves to him. You don't hold everything back. You don't just measure out a few drops of your time and energy to give to Jesus. You just you give it all. You give him what you can, yourself, for his glory. So consider your discipleship. Are you all in? Or do you, do you hold something back? You just you follow him with all that you got or you just give him a few drops here and there? Learn from Mary's example, memorialized forever in, in Scripture. It's true. We remember her. This is what the response of a true believer looks like. Christ gave his all to redeem us from sin. So now how can we not give him our all? Not, not to save ourselves. We're not trying to contribute to our salvation. We're not trying to pay him back. But simply now, this is how we express our love and our devotion to him who gave himself for us. This is what true believers do. This is how they respond. This is the response of true believers. Sadly, this is not how all respond. Thirdly, lastly, we find the response of false believers. The response of false believers. Three typical responses to Jesus. First, there's the outright non-believer. They don't believe. They don't care. Second, there's the true believer. They believe. They follow. They're real. The third, there's those who pretend to believe and pretend to follow, but in time they show their true colors. And as the ultimate case in point, verse 10, after this it says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Verse 10 takes us back to, okay, now we're back in Tuesday of the Passion Week after that little special episode. That evening, Jesus was giving the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives, and actually only four disciples were present for that. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The rest of the disciples, they dispersed, they went back to Bethany, and Judas, he slipped away. Went back into town, into Jerusalem. At the same time, the priests, the scribes, they had assembled in the house of Caiaphas, and they were plotting to kill Jesus. Judas somehow knew, he figured, he knew they hated him, so he shows up while they're meeting. And he says, I want to give Jesus to you. Of course, they were overjoyed by this turn of events. They probably thought an answer to prayer. Verse 11 says, they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This is exactly what they needed. Their challenge now was somehow they got to get Jesus alone, away from the crowds. And who better to inform them of Christ's solitary movements than one of his twelve? That's like a secret service agent tipping off an assassin as to the route of the presidential motorcade. It's like, here's where he's going to be, alone. This is what's going on. Judas would in this way deliver the religious leaders right to Jesus when he was alone because Jesus knew it was actually Christ's custom to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane every night. 
The religious leaders, they had all the fuel, all the gasoline, all the hatred they needed to kill Jesus. They just needed a spark. And Judas was that spark. Since then, Judas has lived on in infamy. And talk about being remembered forever, but in the wrong way. I mean, now like billions of people know that name for the worse. Did you ever wonder, though, why did he do it? Have you thought about that? Why did he why did he do it? Why did he betray Jesus? What was his motivation? I thought he was a disciple. And verse 10 says he's one of the 12. So like, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And maybe you think it was greed. And there's something to that. He surely was captivated by the love of money. He carried around the money box and he would pilfer, take a little off the top for himself. You see his greed and his response to Mary's devotion. And furthermore, when Jesus approached the religious leaders, he said first, Matthew 26, 15 says, he said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? He's like, I'm not going to do this for free. Yeah, I want some compensation. I'll give you Jesus, but what's in it for me? And so they weighed out for him 30 pieces of silver. That price was actually prophetically predicted back in Zechariah 11. It's the price of a common slave gored by an ox. That's the value that the religious leaders and Judas placed on the life of Jesus. So money, yeah, money had something to do with it, yeah. But that's not the real reason. Or it's not the deeper reason. Judas did not betray Jesus just for the love of money. Really, it was the love of self. He betrayed Jesus for the love of of self. That's what it comes down to. You know, we put together, why did he start following Jesus in the first place? It's evident it was for selfish reasons. He was there because, boy, he could get out of it. Following Jesus seemed like to be a, a good thing, a way to serve himself. He wasn't there to bow down, but for him to be lifted up. And at first, it sounded like that's what Jesus promised. Judas may have really believed Jesus was the Messiah. He saw all the signs, the wonders, the teaching. But like all the rest of the Jews, he had that purely materialistic view of the Messiah. If Jesus is the Messiah, then pretty soon he's going to overthrow Rome, set up his throne in Jerusalem. He's going to reign. And Jesus even promised that his disciples would reign with him. They'd have their own thrones. So Judas thought, that sounds pretty good. He wanted to be on Christ's team because it looked like at at the time that was the winning team. Over time, though, he became disillusioned. Why? Well, he started to realize that all the rewards Jesus promised, they're, they're, not, they're not material, these are spiritual. And Jesus, he's actually not all that concerned about wealth. In fact, this rich young ruler came to Jesus and he turned him away because he was not willing to give up his love of money. At the same time, the picture of Jesus as the Messiah, it started to seem off. It appeared like Jesus, he's not coming to overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom now. In fact, he keeps talking about his death. That doesn't make any sense. And for his disciples, it seemed like all that was left for them was a life of suffering and persecution. Not looking so hot to follow Jesus anymore. Judas surely started to reason, you know, where, where's this train headed? This is not looking good for me anymore. And you know, what's a dead master going to do for me? It seemed like Jesus was now on the losing side. And so Judas, he didn't want to be on the losing side. Time to switch teams. Following Jesus did not pan out like he thought it would. Jesus was not giving him all of his heart's desires. In fact, Jesus left him with nothing. So Judas decided to switch sides. The ship's going down. At least he's not going to be on it. 
But at least he could salvage something. I mean, in his mind, he just wasted years following Jesus. At least he'll get something out of, out of how you know, he's going to get rid of him. Might as well get some compensation. So he turns him over for some money. But in the end, what does it really come down to? It's the love of self. Judas was just a guy living for himself. And Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was a false believer. That he was never born again. Read John chapter 6. Jesus himself says so. He was never a true disciple. Why not? Because he never came to the end of himself. He never really bowed the knee to Jesus. He could never really accept the cost to follow Jesus. And there is a cost. It's not perfume. It's yourself, your life. Judas, he didn't want to give that up. He loved self. He lived for self. He couldn't accept the call to true discipleship. And don't forget that call. This is the pinnacle verse in Mark's gospel. Do you remember? You can go there. Mark chapter 8, the very end. Remember this, Mark chapter 8? This is where Jesus lays it out. What does it mean to follow him? Mark 8, 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Can you just imagine if Jesus glanced at Judas when he said that? Because Judas forfeited his soul, not for the whole world, just for like 30 pieces of silver. And Judas, though, he responded in a way that's it's just typical of false believers. Actually, it's just typical. He tried to get the best of both worlds. He was hedging his bets. Yeah, he wanted to follow Jesus because of some perceived benefit, like a, you know your best life now or fire insurance from hell. But he also still wanted to live for self. He wanted, you know, I'm still in this for me. I want to have a, a, the life that I want. Yeah, maybe I'll give Jesus a few drops of devotion here and there, but, but ultimately he was withholding his life for himself. Judas sat on the throne of Judas' heart. And that's, that's a false believer. That is typical of a false believer. And believe, that still happens today. Many have the same response to Jesus today. It, it's not enough. Just call yourself a Christian, come to church. That doesn't mean anything. It's about what's going on in your heart. Judas, on the outside, was the most convincing hypocrite ever. None of the other disciples ever suspected him of being a phony. Until the very end, they, they didn't. But the Lord knew his heart, and the Lord knew that he was not enthroned on Judas's heart. And people are still like this. They're not concerned about how Jesus can change their heart and redeem them from sin. They're just concerned about what Jesus can do for them. You know, what can he do for me? What can he get me? They want a better life. They want health. They want wealth. And somehow they see Jesus as getting that for them. So they'll follow as long as they get something out of it. But here's the thing, when it doesn't pan out, when they ultimately don't get what they want out of following Jesus, what do they do? Well, they betray him. It's the same thing, they betray him. They, they turn on him, they stop following him, they switch sides, they leave. It happens all the time. It's the typical response of false 
believers. I told this story before, but I remember it so well. Freshman year of college, that's when I became a Christian, leaving the party scene. Had a friend, though, he was a Christian, he was entering the party scene. He just was going all after the world, fully into the way of the world, stopped going to church. I asked him, talked to him, like, hey, what's going on? And he said, basically, I'm done with Christianity. And I said, why? And he said, well, he just wasn't getting anything out of it. It wasn't working out like he thought it would. He wasn't being fulfilled, wasn't satisfied. He's not that happy. And he looks at people in the world, and they seem to be, like, way happier. He's just not getting anything out of it. So we switched sides, consequently went off the deep end. Is it really any different than what Judas did? Just betraying Christ. And you hear this morning, you know, why did you sign up? Why did you follow Jesus? Why are you here? It has to stem from a right view of self and a right view of Christ. If you love self, you live for self, then you're just going to see Jesus as some ticket to a better life here. And that's it. And you'll stick around as long as you get something out of it. But instead, you have to see yourself as God sees it. Lost, hopeless, wicked, depraved, deserving of of judgment, needing redemption. I mean, living for self, that's what got us into trouble in the first place. That's what invited God's judgment in the first place. But if you get this, then you'll see Christ for who he is, the Lord, the Savior, who gave himself for, for you to redeem you. Look, there is, there is a great blessing to be had. That's true, eternal life. I mean, that's amazing. And that comes to you for free, a free grace gift, eternal life. You don't earn that. You don't deserve that. He gives it to you. But paradoxically, the free gift has a cost. It costs you everything, your entire life. How much do you value Jesus? Is he the pearl of great price to you? You're willing to sell everything, give everything, to obtain him. You see the difference this morning between Judas, who's willing to sacrifice the things of the world, to, or rather, who's willing to sacrifice Jesus to gain the things of the world, and Mary, who's willing to sacrifice the things of the world to gain Jesus. See the difference. Consider your own discipleship. For the second time, Mary has chosen the better part. And what about you? How will you be remembered by the Lord? For better or for worse? Let's pray. Our God and our Redeemer, we do confess we need redemption. We once were lost and blind, captivated by sin and snared by the devil, in utter desperate need for redemption. Lord, the self, it's fallen. What, what can we do on our own? Living for self, that is what got us into this place in the first place. But we thank you, Lord. Your love is supreme. If only the world could just see how much you've shown your love by the cross. How can anyone doubt your love ever? You gave your own son to live and to die, to pour out himself, his blood on the cross for us. Thank you for this, this love. Thank you for this redemption, this salvation. By it, ourselves can be renewed, restored, redeemed, transformed. You give us, Lord, a new self that, that wants you, that worships you, that, that lives for you. 
I pray for all here that they may count that cost, consider discipleship and give themselves, crying out in repentance and faith just to Jesus, the Lord, to have mercy on them and he will make themselves new and they will follow. And for us, Lord, we reflect back on our redemption. Now, Lord, we just want to drive to, to love you and to live for you. Like Mary, we've received what you've done for us. Now it's just, we just want to give you our love and our devotion. We want to express our devotion to you. And every day, the way we act, the way we live, the things we say and the songs we sing, we want to give you our worship, our devotion now. Not just a few drops, but everything. We do that now as we leave. We, we love you, Lord, and thank you for what we're going to learn about the cross, what you did for us. Lift up your name in praise. Amen.